Well, 75 years ago, back in 1948, Winston Churchill was speaking to the British House of Commons, and he said something to them that you may have heard before. Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Have you heard that before? Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, when Winston Churchill said that to the British House of Commons, he was actually paraphrasing a Spanish-American philosopher by the name of George Santayana. George Santayana wrote a book in 1905, and in that book he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, no matter which way you phrase it, both George Santayana and Winston Churchill encourage us to study history and to learn from it. They want us to study history and learn from it so that we don't repeat the mistakes of those who have gone before us. Now, the Bible, it's not a history book per se, but the Bible does contain history. And the Bible contains the good, the bad, and the ugly of the history that it reports on. And God inspired the writers of the Bible to include the bad and the ugly parts of Israel's history so that we can learn from the mistakes and the sins that they made and avoid repeating them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says so. After Paul describes some of Israel's sins in verses 1 through 5, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, Paul was saying, learn from Israel's history that's in the scriptures. Learn from Israel's history that's in the Bible so that you don't repeat their mistakes, so that you don't commit the same sins that they did and then suffer the same consequences. Learn from the history that's in the Bible. It sounds like such simple advice, yet so often we fail to do that. So often we fail to learn from the history that's in the Bible, and we end up making the same mistakes, and we end up committing the same sins that the people of Israel did who came before us. And as a result, we end up experiencing the same negative consequences as they did. Now, failing to learn from Israel's history that's, that's in the Scriptures, this isn't, this isn't anything new. This has been going on for a long time, at least as far back as the first century. You see, in Acts chapter 7, there was a Christian named Stephen, and he tells the, the Jewish authorities at the time that they must not have learned from Israel's history because they're making the same mistakes that their ancestors did, and they're committing the same sins that their ancestors did. And Stephen wants these authorities to know that because they have not learned from Israel's history, they're going to suffer the same negative consequences that their ancestors did under the mighty hand of God. And so we're going to look at what Stephen said to the Jewish authorities today in Acts chapter 7 so that we might learn the lessons that they failed to learn. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it out at this time, and you can open it up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, let me just remind you about who Stephen is. Stephen was one of the seven men that was chosen by the early church to help with the daily distribution to the widows. And as Stephen was, was serving the widows in the church, uh, there, were some, there were some Jews who tried to debate him on theological matters. And these Jews who tried to debate Stephen on theological matters, they, they just couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. And since these Jews couldn't win a theological debate against Stephen, they got mad and they got jealous. And so what they did is they went out and they secretly arranged for some men to accuse Stephen of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. They were hoping that these accusations against Stephen would get the other Jews fired up and that the, there would be such a stir that, that the authorities would come in and arrest Stephen. Well, their plan worked. Okay? When the people heard the accusations, 
that Stephen was blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God, they were outraged. And so the, the scribes and the, and the, and the leaders of the, the Sanhedrin, they come in and they arrest Stephen. They take him before the council. And when he's standing before the council, there were some, some false witnesses that stood up and said, yep, this guy, he's blaspheming Moses. He's blaspheming the temple. He's blaspheming God. And the high priest looks at Stephen and he says, are these things so? Well, what we have here in chapter 7 is Stephen's response to the high priest. And so the passage that we have today, Stephen's speech, it's a long one. Okay, it's pretty much uh, all of chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. And since this passage is, is so long, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize what Stephen says in the first half of his speech, and then I'll read and focus on what he says in the second half. I think all the main points that Stephen wants to make in his speech are really in the second half of his speech. Uh, but in the first half of his speech, what he does is he, he starts off by reminding the, the Jews on the Sanhedrin that God formed their nation when he spoke to a man named Abraham and told Abraham to leave his hometown of Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq, and go to the land of Canaan, which is where modern-day Israel is located. And Abraham obeyed God, and when he arrived in the land of Canaan, God promised Abraham that his offspring would possess the land. But God told Abraham, he said, first, before your offspring possess this land, first, they're going to have to spend 400 years in a foreign place. And they're even going to serve as slaves in that foreign place. And then Stephen goes on to remind the Sanhedrin that Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob also went by the name of Israel, which is where that nation gets its name. And Jacob had 12 sons. And in the days of Jacob, there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob and his sons, they had to go down to Egypt to get food, and they ended up settling down in Egypt and staying there. And at first, Abraham's descendants, they enjoyed good relations with the Egyptians. But eventually, in the course of time, the Egyptians felt threatened by them and enslaved them. So what God told Abraham was coming true. His, his descendants were traveling to a foreign land, and they were becoming slaves in that foreign land. But then 400 years go by. And it's now time for God to raise someone up who's going to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and bring them back to the promised land in Canaan. And Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that God chose a man named Moses to be the one who would lead them out of Egypt. Moses was a Jewish man, but he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter when he was just a few months old. So he grew up in Pharaoh's palace and he learned all the Egyptian ways. And the scripture says he became mighty in word and deed. Now, that's pretty much what Stephen tells the Sanhedrin in verses 2 through 22. So what I'm going to do at this time is I'm going to read verses 23 through 53, and then we'll focus on what Stephen says to the Sanhedrin in those verses. Now, this is still a long passage to read, so rather than have you stand as I would normally do as, as we read the scriptures, I'll let you remain seated today. But you can follow along as I read verses 23 to 53. Like I said, Stephen's going to tell the Sanhedrin that, that they're committing the same sins that their ancestors did. They're making the same mistakes that their ancestors did. See if you can pick up on what those mistakes and sins are that Stephen points out. Here's what the scripture says in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 23. Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, he says, When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust them aside and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile into Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that, drove God, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, which we know is true. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word and talk about what it means, I pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to learn, Lord, from what Stephen has said to the Sanhedrin, that we might be better at living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the key statements that Stephen makes in his long speech is at the end of verse 51. At the end of verse 51, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, As your fathers did, so do you. After pointing out the mistakes and sins of their ancestors, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, he says, It's obvious that you guys haven't learned from history. It's obvious because you're repeating it. 
You're making the same mistakes. You're committing the same sins as your ancestors. So why don't you change your ways and why don't you take some corrective actions now so that you don't have to suffer God's judgment like they did? Now, in light of this key verse, verse 51, and in light of what Stephen's trying to communicate to the, to the Sanhedrin, the main point that I want to make in the message this morning is this. Because God has included Israel's history in his word, we should learn from it so that we do not repeat their mistakes. Okay? Because God has included Israel's history in his word, we should learn from it so that we do not repeat their mistakes. Now, in his speech to the Sanhedrin, Stephen is going to urge the Sanhedrin to learn three lessons from Israel's history. And since God's word is living and active and still speaks to us today, Stephen's really urging us to learn the same three lessons so that we don't follow in the footsteps of those who made mistakes in the past. So what are the three lessons that Stephen's urging us to learn from Israel's history this morning? Well, the first one is this. Receive your Redeemer. Receive your Redeemer. I want you to look at verse 35. In verse 35, it says that God sent Moses to be the Israelites' ruler and redeemer. That means God chose Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But as the verse says, the people of Israel did not receive Moses. They rejected him. The people of Israel actually rejected Moses on multiple occasions. In verse 23, Stephen says, When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So remember I told you Moses, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter when he was just a few, a few weeks or a few months old. Well, when Moses is 40 years old, he wanted to go out and visit the people of Israel because they were his family. So Moses goes out to where the people of Israel were living. And when he gets there, he sees an Egyptian man beating an Israelite man. And Moses sees this abuse and he wants to save and defend the Israelite. So Stephen tells us in verse 24 that Moses struck the Egyptian and killed him. Now in verse 25, Stephen explains that Moses did this because, because he thought it would help the people of Israel realize that God was going to use him to deliver them from Egyptian oppression. But as the end of verse 25 says, the Israelites didn't get it. Okay, when Moses killed the Egyptian, the Israelites didn't understand that God had chosen him to be their redeemer. So rather than receiving him, they rejected him. Verse 26 tells us that the very next day Moses went out and now he saw two Israelites fighting. And he tries to reconcile them. But in verse 27 and 28, these two, these two Israelites, they reject Moses' intervention. In fact, one of them mockingly says to Moses, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? In other words, this guy says to Moses, he says, Moses, who do you think you are? You're a nobody. Actually, Moses, we know who you are. You're a murderer. We know about that Egyptian that you killed yesterday. You didn't think anybody was looking, but we saw it. We know about it. So just get out of here, Moses. Get out of here. Leave us alone. Go mind your own business. When Moses was 40 years old, he went to his own people to redeem them from slavery, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. That's the first time the people of Israel rejected Moses. Now, the second time the people of Israel rejected Moses was 40 years later. So now Moses is 80 years old. Verse 29 says that Moses fled to the wilderness after he was rejected by his own people the first time. When the people of Israel rejected Moses the first time, he couldn't stay with them because they didn't want them. 
And he couldn't go back to Pharaoh because Pharaoh had heard that he killed the Egyptian and Pharaoh now wanted to kill Moses to punish him for that. So Moses had nowhere to go but to the wilderness. And so that's what he did. He ran out to the wilderness and he lived as an exile in the wilderness. Well, 40 years go by and Moses is now 80 years old and he's still out there in the wilderness. And verses 30 to 34 tell us that this is when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And from that burning bush, God told Moses that it was now time for him to go back to Egypt and lead the people of Israel out of slavery. And so Moses did that, as verse 36 says. Now, Stephen, he doesn't go into all the details about how, about how Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, because the Sanhedrin, they would have been very familiar with the story. If you want all the details, you can read how Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt in the book of Exodus. But Stephen, he just, he just cuts to the chase when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. He says, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And when they got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain to talk with God and to receive the words of the covenant that God was making with the people of Israel. Now, the conversation that Moses had with God on top of the mountain, it was a long one. Moses was up there on the top of the mountain with God for 40 days. And so while Moses is on the top of the mountain talking with God, the people of Israel who are at the bottom of the mountain, they start getting impatient as they're waiting for Moses to return. Verse 39 says that the people of Israel got so impatient that they thrust Moses aside. In other words, they just gave up on Moses. They figured he wasn't coming back. And since the people didn't think Moses was coming back, in verses 40 and 41, the people, they tell Moses' brother Aaron to make gods who will lead them the rest of the way to the promised land. And so Aaron ends up making this statue of a calf out of gold, and the people worshipped it and acknowledged it as their ruler and redeemer. So once again, the people of Israel rejected Moses, the one that God sent to be their ruler and redeemer. Now, why is Stephen telling the, the Sanhedrin all of this? Why is he telling them all about how uh, the, the people of Israel rejected Moses on these two occasions? Well, Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to know and to see that they were doing the exact same thing. Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to see that they were rejecting the one that God had sent to be their redeemer. Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to see that God sent Jesus to redeem them from being slaves to sin and slaves to the law, and God sent Jesus to rule over them as their king. But they thrust Jesus aside and they rejected him just like their ancestors had rejected Moses. Remember how I told you that Moses came to his own people and his own people did not receive him? They rejected him? The same exact thing happened to Jesus. Jesus came to be the ruler and the redeemer of the Israelites. Jesus came to deliver the people of Israel from their sin and to rule over them as king. But the people of Israel rejected him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, it says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, when the people of Israel rejected Moses and turned to this golden calf to lead them, God was not happy with them. God was not happy with them because when they rejected Moses and trusted this golden calf to redeem them, they were really rejecting God because God was the one who had sent Moses to them. And so as a result of that, verse 42 says that God turned away from the people of Israel. And that might not sound like a big deal, but when you think about the fact that, that God is our creator and our sustainer and our provider and our protector, you can see that bad things will happen if God turns away. And bad things did happen to the people of Israel 
on the very day that the people of Israel rejected Moses and made this golden calf to lead them, God arranged for 3,000 of the Israelites to be killed on that day. And Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to know that they too will experience God's judgment if they continue to reject Jesus, the one that God had sent to be their ruler and redeemer. I read about this man who went hiking on Mount Elbert a few years ago. At 14,439 feet, Mount Elbert is the highest mountain in Colorado. And so this hiker went out on Mount Elbert, and when he was out there, he lost his way. And he couldn't find his way back to the lodge that he was staying at. And so when the man didn't return to the lodge by 8 o'clock at night and it was getting dark, the lodge owner reported the hiker missing, and a search and rescue team was organized to find him. Now, the rescuers knew that this man had a cell phone on him, and so they decided to give it a call to see if he would answer. So they dialed the number, and the phone rang. So praise the Lord, he had a signal up there on the mountain. Now, this hiker, when he sees the call coming in from an unknown number, he declined the call because he thought it was one of those spam calls. And so a few minutes later, the, the rescuers, they, they try calling him again. And the hiker sees the number again and declines the call again. And after about three or four times, the man just blocked all messages and all, and all calls from this number. Every time the rescuers called, this man declined the call. He just kept rejecting the ones who were sent to save him. Now, this could have ended very badly for the hiker, but thankfully it didn't. After 32 hours of wandering around, he stumbled on the right trail and ended up making his way back to the lodge, and everything turned out okay. Now, everything may have turned out okay for the hiker who rejected the ones who were sent to save him, but I can tell you on the basis of God's word that it will not turn out okay for those who reject the one that God sent to save us from our sin. You see, Stephen told the Sanhedrin about Moses and about how the people of Israel rejected him because he wanted them to know that God's judgment will come to those who reject the Redeemer that God sends to them. Stephen quotes from the prophet Amos in verses 42 and 43 to remind the Sanhedrin that God sent their ancestors into exile in Babylon because they rejected the ruler and the redeemer that he had sent to them. And they turned to other gods to lead them. And the point that Stephen's making here is that if God's judgment came to those who rejected Moses in the past, then God's judgment will surely come to those who reject their redeemer Jesus in the present. In verses, in verses 23 to 43, Stephen's basically saying to the Sanhedrin and to us, learn from Israel's history. Receive your Redeemer. Don't reject Him. Receive Jesus. Receive your Redeemer. That's the first lesson that Stephen's urging us to learn from Israel's history. Now, the second lesson that Stephen's urging us to learn is this. Relinquish your religion. Relinquish your religion. And so let me explain what that means. As God's chosen people, the Israelites enjoyed a special relationship with God, and this relationship was based on faith. When Abraham arrived in the land of Canaan, he didn't have any children, and that's when God appeared to Abraham and told them that he would make him into a great nation. So Abraham needed faith to believe that God would provide him with children. And then when Moses was leading the, the Israelites out of Egypt, he needed faith to believe that God would part the waters of the Red Sea. And when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, he needed faith that God would bring down the walls of Jericho. You can look back through Israel's history and you can see that faith has always been the way to relate to God. 
As the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, when the people of Egypt, or when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, Stephen explains in verse 44 that, that God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was basically a big tent that the Israelites carried around with them wherever they went. And this tent represented God's presence among them. And this tabernacle, it was a reminder, not only that God was with them, but it was a reminder that they needed to put their faith in this God who was always with them. Well, about 400 years after God instructed Moses to build this tabernacle, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin in verse 46 that, that David was king, and he thought it would be a good idea to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. David didn't think it was right that he had this nice palace made out of cedar wood to live in while God had this 400-year-old portable tent to represent his presence among the people. So David wanted to build a temple for God. It would be a nice, new, permanent structure for God. Now, when David expressed his desire to build this temple, God told him that, that he wouldn't build it, but that his son Solomon could. And that's what happened in Israel's history. In verse 47, Stephen tells us that David's son Solomon built the temple for, for God in Jerusalem. Now, something unfortunate happened after Solomon built the temple. After Solomon built the temple, the people of Israel, over time, started to think that the only place they could meet with God was at the temple in Jerusalem. And they started to think that the only way they could relate to God was by performing religious rituals at the temple. The people of Israel, they lost sight of the fact that God is not confined to one place, and they lost sight of the fact that the way to please God is through faith. And with this mindset, as time went on, the people of Israel began to focus more and more on their religious rituals and less and less on the relationship they had with God through faith. And as the people of Israel focused less and less on their relationship with God that they had through faith, they began to drift away from God. And God became angry at them for drifting away. God became so angry with them, in fact, that he allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the temple and take them captive. That happened in 587 B.C. But then 70 years later, the people of Israel returned from their captivity and, and they rebuilt the temple. But guess what they did? They went right back to their old ways. They didn't learn from history. The people of Israel went right back to thinking that God was confined to the temple. And they went right back to thinking that the way to, to please God was through their religious rituals instead of through faith. And without a relationship with God that's based on faith, the people of Israel drifted away from him once again. And Stephen's pointing out to the Sanhedrin that they're guilty of this. Now, it's true that God had prescribed certain sacrifices and certain ceremonies for the people of Israel to conduct at the tabernacle, which carried over to the temple. But God prescribed those sacrifices and ceremonies so that the people would see the one that they pointed to, which was the Savior that God had planned to send. God prescribed these sacrifices and these ceremonies so that the, the people of Israel would put their faith in the Messiah who was to come. But what happened is the people of Israel got so hung up on the mechanics and the legalities associated with these rituals that they overlooked the one that they pointed to. That's why the Sanhedrin didn't put their faith in Jesus when he came. They were so caught up in the mechanics and the legalities of their religious rituals that they didn't recognize their Savior. In verses 48 to 50, Stephen quotes from the prophet Isaiah to remind the Sanhedrin that God does not live in structures made by human hands. 
And with that quote, Stephen's trying to tell the Sanhedrin that the way to relate to God and the way to please God is through faith in Jesus, not through religious rituals conducted at the temple. I recently read a testimony by a lady named Jen Rowland. And Jen says that she grew up in a very religious family. She said every week she went to church with her parents and they participated in all the rituals that their church offered. And when Jen grew up and got married and had children of her own, she had them participate in all the rituals too because she thought that they were required to please God. Jen says she was very religious as a child, very religious as an adult, but all along she knew something was missing from her life, but she just couldn't put her finger on what was missing. But that changed one day when she decided to go to, to this group of moms that, that met to study God's Word. Okay, she, she admits that she only went to, to meet with this group of moms because she wanted to get a break from her kids. But when she went, she found something so much more valuable than just an hour of rest. Jen says that when she spent time with these Christian moms in God's Word, she quickly realized that they had something that she didn't. She noticed that these women had a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jen could tell that this relationship with God filled these women with purpose and fulfillment, which she didn't have. And it dawned on her, a relationship with God, a sense of purpose and fulfillment. This is what I've been longing for without even realizing it. And so Jen said that after she spent time in God's word with these moms, she wanted to have a relationship with God like they did. And so these moms in the group, they took time to explain to Jen that if she wanted a relationship with God, she could have one. And they told Jen that to have that relationship with God, she needed to put her faith in Jesus who had, had come to save her from her sin. She had to put her faith in what Jesus had done for her, not in what she was doing for God. And so Jen did that. She put her faith and her trust in Jesus. She relinquished her religion. She traded in her religion that was based on works for a relationship with God that was based on faith. And Jed said that made the huge difference in her life. She said that when she traded in her religion for a relationship with God that was based on faith, that she had a new sense of purpose in life. And she said that she had new attitudes towards others, new perspective on her problems, and a new desire to help others know God and grow in a relationship with Him. And when people started noticing the changes in Jen's life, and they would ask her about it, she would tell them that relinquishing her religion and relating to God through faith in Jesus is what made all the difference in her life. Do you know what the two most important letters are in the English alphabet? Two most important letters in the English alphabet are the letters N and E. And do you know why? Because those two letters, the letters N and E, are what distinguish the words do from the word done. D-O versus D-O-N-E. Do versus done. That's one way to describe the difference between relating to God through religious rituals and relating to God through faith in Christ. You see, religion is all about what you do for God in hopes that He will find you acceptable. But done refers to the fact that Jesus Christ has done all the work to make you acceptable to God. And God says that the way to relate to Him and the way to please Him it's through faith in what Jesus has done. So let me ask you, are you trusting in what you are doing for God so that he will find you acceptable? Or are you trusting in what Jesus has done for you on the cross? If Stephen were here, he would say, relinquish your religion and relate to God through faith in Jesus Christ. He would say, faith is the only way that you can relate to God and please God. It always has been and it always will be. And Stephen would say, 
it doesn't end well for those who try to relate to God in any other way. It didn't end well for the people of Israel, so learn from them. Relinquish your religion. Relate to God through faith in Christ. That's the second lesson Stephen would urge us to learn from Israel's history. And then the third lesson that Stephen would urge us to learn is this. Retire your resistance. Retire your resistance. So God revealed himself to us in a number of ways. One of the ways that God has revealed himself to us is through his word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Early in Israel's history, God's word was recorded for the people in the law, those first five books that we have in our Bibles. Remember when Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days? God was giving Moses the law on the mountain at that time. And when God brought the, the people of Israel out of Egypt, God made a covenant to be their God, and the law was the terms of the covenant. But unfortunately, what happened is the people of Israel didn't keep the terms of the covenant. Over and over again, they kept doing the things God said not to do. And over and over again, they didn't do what God said they should do. Now, when the people of Israel strayed from God's word and from his ways, God would speak to the people of Israel through a prophet who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the prophet would call the people back to obedience. And through the prophet, God would tell the people that they would face his judgment if they didn't return to him. Now, oftentimes, mixed into these prophetic messages of judgment were indicators that God was planning to send someone who would save his people from their sin, the Messiah. The Messiah would come to save the people from their sin and to establish God's kingdom on earth. And God spoke these messages of judgment and hope to the people of Israel through the prophets so that the people would turn from their sinful ways and live for him. But do you know what the people of Israel did when, when God sent to them these prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, they resisted them. They persecuted some of them and they killed others. Now, in verse 51, Stephen calls the members of the Sanhedrin a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, because they always resist the Holy Spirit. In verses 52 and 53, Stephen gives some examples of how the Sanhedrin was resisting the Holy Spirit. He's saying you're resisting the Holy Spirit in the same ways that your ancestors did. He says, you religious big shots on the Sanhedrin, you think you have it all together? Well, guess what? You guys haven't learned from Israel's history because you're doing the same things that your ancestors did. You're resisting the Holy Spirit in the same ways that they did. When, Holy, when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write the law, your ancestors resisted the Holy Spirit by disobeying the law. And now guess what? You're doing the same thing. And when the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets to speak God's word to your ancestors, they resisted the Holy Spirit by persecuting those prophets. And now you're doing the same thing. He says, in fact, you just did something even worse. He says, you persecuted and killed Jesus. He's the one those Spirit-inspired prophets pointed to. And he's the one the apostles proclaimed to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you persecuted and killed him. You see, you're just like your ancestors. They always resisted the Holy Spirit, and so do you. Now, what about us? Can we resist the Holy Spirit today? Well, you bet we can. And if we fail to learn from Israel's history, we just might do that. We might end up resisting the Holy Spirit and suffering as a result of it. Now, how might we resist the Holy Spirit today? Well, there are several ways that we might resist the Holy Spirit today, but I'm just going to highlight one of them. 
One way that we might resist the Holy Spirit today is by refusing to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior when we hear the good news about who He is and what He has done. This is what the Sanhedrin was guilty of. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John told the Sanhedrin about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John and the rest of the apostles told the Sanhedrin about Jesus again. And when the apostles told the Sanhedrin about Jesus, we know from what Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired their witness. So when the Sanhedrin heard about Jesus on multiple occasions and refused to receive Him as their Lord and Savior, they were guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of people today when they hear about Jesus Christ and how He's the Son of God who died on a cross to pay for our sin and he, how He rose from the dead three days later to show that He was the Lord. When people hear that message and refuse to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's the one who empowered that witness. I want to tell you about a Lance Corporal in the Marines named Jeff Guthrie. When Jeff was a kid, he said there were several times that he went to church and he heard the good news about Jesus. He heard about how Jesus was the Son of God and he heard about how Jesus died on a cross for his sin. And he heard about how Jesus rose from the dead so that all the world would know that he's the Son of God and that he's the Lord. And, and Jeff says that when the preacher would give an invitation at the end of those messages and ask if anybody wanted to come and follow Jesus, Jeff said he knew that it was something that he should do. He said he knew it was something that he should do, but he never did because he was always afraid of what his friends would think if they found out that he became a Christian. So anytime Jeff felt like he should commit his life to, to following Jesus, anytime that, that Jeff had that sense that, that God was calling him to, to put his faith in Christ, Jeff said he just pushed all those thoughts out of his mind. Well, to make a long story short, Jeff Guthrie made a big mess of his life after high school. Jeff says for 12 years he made bad decision after bad decision and soon found himself lonely, broke, homeless, and unemployed. So at the age of 30, Jeff decided to enlist in the Marines, hoping that this would help him get his life back on track. Well, in 2003, five years after he had joined the Marines, Jeff Guthrie found himself in the middle of one of the fiercest battles that was a part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Jeff Guthrie was assigned to the unit that invaded Baghdad and was assigned to take over Saddam Hussein's presidential palace. Now, the battle in Baghdad turned out to be far more intense than anyone ever expected. Some things went wrong, and by all accounts, Jeff Guthrie and the rest of the men in his unit, they all should have been killed. But God miraculously spared their lives and gave them victory that day. If you read the accounts of the battle, you'll see it truly was a miracle. Well, two days after the battle was won, Jeff Guthrie was sitting outside of his armored vehicle in front of Saddam Hussein's palace, and the chaplain happened to be walking by and noticed that Jeff was on the, on the verge of tears. And so the chaplain asked Jeff what was wrong. And that's when Lance Corporal Jeff Guthrie just broke down, and in between his sobs, he explained to the chaplain that he had been resisting the Holy Spirit's call his whole life to follow Jesus ever since he was a kid. And Jeff said he, he knew he didn't deserve God's protection in the battle, and he knew that he had done all these bad things, and that there was no reason why God should have saved him that day in the battle. And Jeff didn't, he knew he didn't deserve to be alive, and he didn't want to waste what God had done for him. He didn't want to waste the life that God had, had graciously spared him. 
And so Jeff Guthrie, he told the chaplain, he said, I want to commit my life to following Jesus right here, right now. And so he did. In front of all his comrades and with tears streaming down his face, Lance Corporal Jeff Guthrie resisted, and he retired his resistance, and he committed to following Jesus. And then the very next day, just to make sure that everyone knew that he had committed to following Jesus, he had the chaplain baptize him inside of Saddam Hussein's presidential palace. Now, what about you? You've heard about who Jesus is today. You've heard about what he's done. And in case you zoned out and missed it, let me tell you again, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on a cross to pay for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead so that all the world would know that he's our Redeemer and our Lord. And so my question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? If you've rejected Jesus in the past, will you receive him as your Redeemer today? If you've been trusting in the things that you've been doing for God to be acceptable in his sight, well, will you relinquish your religion and put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you in the cross? And if you've been pushing thoughts of following Jesus out of your mind, will you retire your resistance today and commit to following him? Friends, after looking at what Stephen told the Sanhedrin about Israel's history, I can tell you that the biggest mistake you could ever make in your entire life would be to walk out of here today not knowing that your sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. Don't make that mistake. If you've never done so before, tell Jesus that you want him to be your Lord and Savior. You want him to be your ruler and redeemer. Tell him and then tell somebody about the decision that you've made. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you this morning because you are a God of mercy and a God of grace. Father, none of us deserve the life that you've given us because, Lord, we've all turned our backs on you. We've all done things that have displeased you. We're all guilty of sin. And, Lord, you would have every right to just strike us down as a result of that. But you didn't. You preserved us, and you gave us an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ, your Son, who came to this earth, who took on human flesh so that he could represent us before you. And we've heard this morning, Lord, about how Jesus did that and how he went and died on the cross in our place, taking our sin upon himself and suffering the punishment that we deserved. And then to prove that he's your son and to prove that his sacrifice was sufficient, three days later, he rose from the grave. Father, I pray this morning that we would receive Jesus Christ as our ruler and our redeemer. I pray that we would make him the Lord of our lives and that we would choose to follow him, to let him call the shots in our life. I pray, God, that we would relinquish our religion, that we would recognize that it's not through the things that we do that you find us acceptable. It's through what Jesus Christ has done. We're not capable of earning your forgiveness, God. We're not capable of earning our place in heaven. We have to trust in what Jesus has done, and I pray that we would do that. So God, keep us from resisting the Holy Spirit. 
If there's any here who have been resisting up to this point in their life, I pray that today would be the day that they retire their resistance and that they say yes to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save us from our sin and it's his name that I pray.